0: Psalm 74. This is a contemplation of Asaph. O oh God, why have you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation which you have purchased of old, the tribe of your inheritance which you have redeemed, the, this Mount Zion where you have dwelt. Lift up your feet to the perpetual des- desolations. The enemy has damaged everything in the sanctuary. Your enemies roar in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their banners for signs. They seem like men who lift up axes among the thick trees. And now they break down its carved work all at once with axes and hammers. They have set fire to your sanctuary. They have defiled the dwelling place of your name to the ground. They said in their hearts, let us destroy them altogether. They have burned up all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, nor is there any among us who knows how long. O God, how long will the adversary reproach? Will the enemy blasphemy your name forever? Why do you withdraw your hand, even your right hand? Take it out of your bosom and destroy them. For God is my king from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea serpents in the waters. You broke the heads of Leviathan in pieces and gave him as food to the people inhabiting the wilderness. You broke open the fountain and the flood. You dried up up mighty rivers. The day is yours. The night also is yours. You have prepared the light and the sun. You have set all the borders of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Remember this, that the enemy has reproached, O Lord, and that a foolish people has blasphemed your name. O do not deliver the life of your turtle dove to the wild beast. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have respect to the covenant, for the dark places of the earth are full of the haunts of cruelty. O do not let the oppressed return ashamed. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, plead your own cause. Remember how the foolish man reproaches you daily. Do not forget the voice of your enemies. The tumult of those who rise up against you increases continually. Uh, While I'm looking for Exodus uh, chapter 16, which will be starting in verse 22, I want to say what I forgot. I said there was something I wanted to announce, and it's that Roy, uh, we know from last week that he broke his hip, Uh, He had it replaced, um, and uh, we went and visited him. I don't remember. Mike was over there that day. It was uh, earlier. It was the day I think he went from the hospital to the place where he's staying. And uh, he looked, you know, he was in a little bit of pain. He didn't look really, uh, you know, medicine gets you down. It just kind of keeps you down for a few days. Uh, We visited him after mission work yesterday, and he looked a lot better. He was happy. He was just, you know, so uh, keep Roy in prayer. You know, you're sitting in a place, and— uh, you'd rather be at home, but uh, I know that uh, Mike and Bob live close and they do visit him. Uh, he said they've been there every day, but, uh, you know, just keep Roy in prayer until uh, he does get back home and uh, pretty soon he'll be doing cartwheels for us. So, um, all right, Exodus sixteen twenty-two through 36, <laughs> this is entitled Entering God's Rest and subtitle because there's two things going on, The Hidden Omer, all right? Exodus 16, starting in verse 22. And so it was on the sixth day that they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one. And all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses. Then he said to them, this is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake today and boil what you will boil and lay up for yourselves all that remains to be kept until morning. So they laid it up till morning, and Mo, as Moses commanded, and it did not stink, nor were there any worms in it. Then Moses said, Eat that today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. Now it happened that some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but they found none. And Moses uh, and the Lord said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my covenant commandments and my laws? See... For the Lord has given you the Sabbath, therefore he gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place, let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. And the house of Israel called its name manna. And it was like white coriander seed, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Then Moses said, this is the thing which the Lord has commanded Fill an omer with it to be kept for your generations, that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a pot and put an omer of manna in it and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. And the children of Israel ate manna 40 years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Now an omer is one-tenth of an ephah. Last week I told you that it was probably a seven to nine in complexity, and if you didn't watch last week's sermon, or if you weren't here, then today will be even more complicated. If not, this will be a seven to nine in complexity. It's, It's something that you may grasp, you may not. Don't worry about it. The main thing is that Christ is what is revealed in these passages. If you get that much, all the details don't matter. But Uh, what I did last night because my wife obviously works every other Sunday I sat down with her and we watched it together so um, that way she wouldn't be as lost as she otherwise would be and so um, that was a nice joyful evening for me and she probably was saying I see you already, I don't need to see you again but anyway um, my question to you before I start is would anybody want to come up here would you like to come up and give an evaluation of this passage a shot anybody If you want to, I'll let you. All you have to do is think of Christ. Everything will fall into place. No? Okay. As I first looked over this passage, a feeling that comes from time to time took a hold of me. How am I going to make a sermon out of this? And I'm serious. I looked at these words and I thought, I don't know how this is going to happen. For whatever reason, I figured that it would be difficult to find a lot of hidden treasure in it. But as so often happens, I was completely wrong. Even the last verse, and if you read it right now, you're going to say, how does this fit anything? It seems wholly disconnected to the rest of the account, and even that last verse made perfect sense by the time I was done typing. Like the last few verses of the book of Ruth, this verse seems to be added on for no particularly good reason. But there's always a perfectly good one when the Lord has determined for it to be there. And so let's jump into the passage and see what wonderful things we can pull out of it. Our text verse today comes from Psalm 119. It is the 162nd verse. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. As so happens so often with each new insight into Christ that showed up in these verses, I literally rejoiced as if having found great treasure. I hope you'll rejoice over each nugget which is found here as well. What a wondrous and superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today. The first is a holy Sabbath to the Lord, verses 22 through 26. Verse 22, and so it was on the sixth day that they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one. The sixth day of the week is Friday. On this day, one of the miracles of the manna is evidenced, because twice as much manna was available for gathering than on the other five days. Instead of one omer per person, there was mishne shne Omer, or double two the omer. This is what the Lord promised in verse 5, and this is what has happened. It would be unreasonable to assume that this is anything less than a double miracle. The manna itself was neither natural in either content or amount. The fact that it came to be twice as much on Friday only added to the miraculous nature of the event. It should be noted that the manna is called bread here and elsewhere. It isn't merely called food, nor is it always specifically called by the name that it's been given, manna. Instead, it is called bread. It is a picture and a foreshadowing of Christ who is the bread of life. Verse 22 continues, and all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses. This is what's recorded in verse 5. And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. There's one of two possibilities concerning the reaction of these elders. The first is that Moses relayed this information to them, and they simply didn't pay attention. Or Moses didn't tell them in order to see how they would respond to what happened. Either way, it seems by their appearing before Moses to tell them about the great harvest that they weren't sure what to do with the surplus. If they kept it, would it stink and be filled with worms in the morning? If they threw it out, would they be held accountable for wasting what the Lord had provided? Remember last week I said that it was about 93,500 bushels For One day of food for this many people if they were to throw all that away would the Lord be angry either way they seem to be in a conundrum concerning what they should do with the double portion they had received and so Moses explains or re explains it to them verse 23 then he said to them this is what the Lord has said tomorrow is a Sabbath a holy Sabbath to the Lord. This verse contains the first use of the word Shabbaton or rest, which is in the entire Bible. Literally, Shabbaton, Shabbat, Kodesh, Yehovah, Machar, or a rest. A holy Sabbath to Jehovah is tomorrow. Scholars are divided on how to present the Sabbath day here. Some argue that the Sabbath is to be considered an eternal institution based on Genesis 2 verse 3 which said, then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Some go so far as to say that there was confusion in these elders about what to do on the Sabbath because they had this double portion on Friday and they were confused about what to do with the second Omer on Saturday. Would they be allowed to violate the Sabbath to prepare it that is absolutely nonsense nothing in scripture shows that the sabbath existed at all until this point in history not a single verse outside of genesis 2 verse 3 hints at this and the text itself will disprove this secondly genesis 2 verse 3 only became a written fact after the giving of the law through moses and it will be written after this account right here in exodus Genesis 2 verse 3 simply describes the fact that God sanctified the seventh day, but it goes no further than that. There was nothing prescriptive added to the general statement which was made in Genesis. Thirdly, the reason is given for the Sabbath in the presentation of the Ten Commandments. There's two of them, one in Exodus 20 and one in Deuteronomy chapter 5. But the reason for the giving of the Sabbath in both of those Ten Commandments is different. First, it is based on creation, and then it is based on redemption. Therefore, the Sabbath was uniquely revealed to Israel at the time of their organization as a nation to show that the Lord is their creator and their redeemer. Until this point, there was no need to mandate the Sabbath to the world. And to demonstrate that this is certain, the Lord told Israel that the Sabbath would be a sign between him and them, a sign of sanctification that is found in Exodus 31. Here's what it says. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel saying, surely my Sabbath you shall keep for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Also, these words directly clue us into this because it says tomorrow is a Sabbath rest. It does not say HaShabbat or the Sabbath. Instead, it leaves off a definite article. If the people were aware of the Sabbath as an institution, it would have said HaShabbat or the Sabbath. It does not. Instead, Moses was made aware of it in connection to the giving of the manna. Unfortunately, the King James Version of the Bible utterly mistranslates this verse and adds in two definite articles which do not exist in the Hebrew. They say tomorrow is the rest of the Holy Sabbath and to the Lord. By adding these in, they have inserted inappropriate theology to the text, which I believe has actually been harmful to the church, because that's the Bible that has been used by all of these churches that went off on these aberrant directions, like the Seventh-day Adventists. And finally, in the same line of thought, Moses gives additional specificity by repeating the words and adding in the word holy. He says, tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. The entire phrase smacks of and implies uniqueness, and thus first-time instruction concerning Sabbath requirements. The reason why it's important to know this is because of the highly divergent teachings on the Sabbath within Christianity. Those who teach that a Saturday Sabbath is required for Christians will make the claim that this is an eternal standard of God that always existed for humanity. This verse here shows us that this is not true. Much of this aberrant doctrine surely arose from the mistranslation of the King James Version. Rather, only now is the Sabbath introduced into God's redemptive plans for man. In the giving of the manna is a picture of Christ And in the giving of the Sabbath in connection with the manna is another picture of Christ. As he is our bread, he is also our rest. This is seen explicitly in Hebrews 4 verse 3, which says, For we who have believed do enter that rest. By faith in Christ, our heavenly bread, we enter into God's eternal rest, pictured by the giving of the Sabbath. It is only a picture. Verse 23 continues. Bake what you will bake today and boil what you will boil and lay up for yourselves all that remains to be kept until morning. The Hebrew here is more expressive than our words. It reads baking you shall bake and boiling you shall boil. In this thought is more than just instruction for the manna though. There is also a hint as to to the unique nature of this substance. It wasn't just something that one would eat uncooked. It was also something that could be cooked in several ways. It could be baked or it could be boiled. This means that it could be used as a base for other things like the addition of spices or sauces. One can bake bread, but boiling bread isn't something that we think of doing. If we boil bread, all we're going to do is drink a lot of glop. The nature of the manna then shows that it could meet many different culinary needs and desires for the people to keep them from getting tired of the same thing. And yet, That is something they will actually complain about in the time ahead. Moses' instructions here are given for them to do all of the work for Saturday on Friday. In doing so, they would be able to keep the Sabbath holy to the Lord. Everything that remains would be kept for the following day. The Hebrew word for remains is adath. It is the second use of it now in the Bible. The first was in verse 18, which we saw last week, and it showed that there was no excess after the people gathered the manna. Now it is used to show that there was not only excess, but an entire day's worth of excess. It is a specific, miraculous exemption to the standard expected for the other five days. Verse 24, so they laid it up till morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink, nor were there any worms in it. Again, we see the miracle of the manna. It was either a miracle that caused the leftovers to stink through disobediently keeping them when they shouldn't, Or it was a miracle to keep the leftovers from stinking when they were obedient. I showed in the previous sermon that this was a miracle that the manna was caused to stink through disobedience. Thus it would picture our walk with Jesus Christ being corrupted through our disobedience. Christ is pure and undefiled. It is we who cause defilement through our sinful actions. Either way, a miracle occurred each week in the cycle of the lives of Israel during the time that they received God's bread from heaven. As Matthew Poole comments on this verse, he says, so great a difference there is between the doing of a thing upon God's command and with his blessings and the doing of the same thing against his will and with his curse. Verse 25, then Moses said, eat that today for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Again, there is no article in front of Sabbath. It simply says, a Sabbath. However, this is the formal institution of the Sabbath for Israel, as will be seen in the next verse. And so actually, it precedes the giving of the law. It is implicitly so in several ways. First, through the giving of the name Sabbath to designate the day. Second, because God provided in advance of the Sabbath for the Sabbath. And third, he directed what was provided on Friday was to be prepared on Friday in advance of the Sabbath. It is a picture of Christ coming after the giving of the law. When he came, the law was annulled and with it the Sabbath day requirement was annulled. For now, though, the Lord expected rest when rest was given. The Geneva Bible states it this way. God took away the opportunity for their labor to signify how holy he would have the Sabbath kept. It should be noted here that eating is not considered work. Now that may sound obvious, but fasting, which is mandated elsewhere in the Bible, has a specific meaning and intent behind it. Israel was not expected to fast each Sabbath, but when they were told to fast, it became an additional precept wholly unrelated to the Sabbath. Verse 26 Six days you shall gather it But on the seventh day The Sabbath There will be none This verse confirms The thought that The first Sabbath Was not a one time occurrence Rather it was to become The standard at all times And as long as the manna Was provided However It could be inferred At this point That the Sabbath Was then only to be observed During the period That the manna was given That would be an incorrect conclusion As we know this But at the time, they would not have known this. Hence, at the giving of the law, the Sabbath will be fully incorporated into what was expected of Israel, even apart from the times when the manna was given. Again, we might say, well, who cares about that? But for Israel, all they have is an incremental giving of instructions as the Lord progressively reveals his intentions to the people. If the manna had ceased and no further definition of the Sabbath had been given, then there might be confusion as to whether they still needed the Sabbath or not. Step by step, the Lord is methodically shaping Israel to become his obedient people. By giving them the Sabbath in connection to the giving of the manna, he was preparing them for a time when the Sabbath would be required apart from the manna. Think about it. Which would it be easier for them to adjust to? Being given manna and being told to prepare on Friday and then not work on Saturday or simply being told to prepare food on Friday and not do anything on Saturday when houses were full of things that had been stored up through normal life. Obviously the first. The giving of the manna for six days and withholding it on the seventh before entering a normal agricultural setting was a valuable preparation for the time when the manna would no longer be provided. The wisdom of God is written all over this story. Manna in the morning, what a wondrous sight. Day by day, we get up and go into the field. And as occurs again, night after night, more is provided, a heavenly crop, a bountiful yield. And on the sixth day, there's something even more. There's a double the amount waiting for us to collect. It's a wondrous sight each Friday as we head out the door. Our Sabbath needs the Lord never does neglect. What a great God one who provides a daily miracle. Our eyes behold what would otherwise not be believed. But through the gathering of the manna, the data is empirical. Any worries about what to eat on the morrow are always relieved. Our second thought today is Israel called its name manna. Verses 27 through 31. Verse 27, now it happened that some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but they found none. This verse implies one of two things. Either one or more of the elders was negligent in giving the instructions to those below him, or the people didn't listen to the elders when they were instructed concerning what to do. One way or another, there is either negligence or disobedience involved. And either way, it is a reflection of the offender's attitudes toward the Lord. We can very easily make this account into a useful example for us. There are churches all over the world whose preachers and teachers fail to convey the proper counsel of the Lord from his word, as we saw today in our prophecy update. That reflects an uncaring attitude by one who is responsible for the people below him. It also shows disrespect for the sanctity of the word of the Lord. This in turn shows an uncaring attitude about his relationship with the Lord. Or it could be that the preacher or teacher is both capable and faithful, and he diligently puts forth sound doctrine for those under his care. And yet, There may be some in his flock who simply disregard what they've heard. This shows an uncaring attitude towards the elder and at the same time towards the Lord and his word. There are obvious variations on both scenarios, but we should honestly evaluate ourselves in relation to the word of the Lord from time to time. The care that we show for his word is reflective of our ultimate concern about our relationship with him. What a terrible thing to face up to on that great day when we stand before him and give an account of how we mistreated his superior word. Concerning this act of disobedience on the first Sabbath, what is most surprising, and which is the exception rather than the rule, is that with the disobedience against a new commandment, there's no display of wrath against the offenders. The Lord shows restraint towards his disobedient people. But the next verse shows us that he, in fact, does care. Verse 28, And the Lord said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? This is a stinging rebuke which is framed in the form of a question. The first time that the Lord asked such a question as this was through Moses to defiant Pharaoh. Here's what he said in Exodus 10, verse 3, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. It is as if the spirit of Pharaoh is dwelling in the people whom he delivered from Pharaoh. And it will continue to be seen in them almost constantly in the pages of the Bible. The next time this form of question is given will be in Numbers. After the giving of the law and as the people are being ready to enter into the land of Canaan. There in Numbers 14:11, we read this. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people reject me? And how long will they not believe me with all the signs which I have performed among them? And because of the rebellion, the Lord sentences the congregation to wander aimlessly in the wilderness until their bodies fall dead. Only two of them, over the age of 20, will be spared because they defended the honor of the Lord. All the others perished without ever reaching the land of promise. Question, what is the name of those two people? Caleb and Joshua. Thank you. Somebody reads and remembers their Bible. (laughs) Verse 29, see, for the Lord has given you the Sabbath. The translation here follows the Hebrew properly. Reu, or see is exactly what's being relayed. He is telling them that they are to perceive that the Sabbath has been given for a reason. It is for the people because they are his people. As I noted from Exodus 31 earlier, it was to be a sign that they were the people of the Lord. Even though that hasn't been stated to them yet, it is implicit in the fact that they were with him, and he has given it. To them. The Egyptians aren't there. The Chinese aren't there. The people of Zimbabwe aren't there. He is with Israel and He has given them Hashabat or the Sabbath for a reason. It is now the first time in the Bible that the Sabbath has been used with a definite article, once again confirming that this is a new thing which has been introduced and which is now specifically defined by the Lord for the people. It has gone from the general to the specific. A new ordinance has been instituted for them. Verse 29 continues. Therefore, he gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. What was implicit is now explicit. It is as if he's knocking on their googlet, their skulls, and saying, Hello, anyone home? I've given you bread for two days for a reason. I even told you the reason and what to do about it. So let's go through this step by step. Did I give you bread for two days any other day? No. Oh, okay. And did I give you two days of bread on the sixth day? Yes. Good. And did I tell you that I wouldn't give you any bread on the seventh day? Yes. So why are you going out and looking for bread on the seventh day? Your new name is Philbert, because you're a nut. Now listen closely, Phil, because I have some instructions for you. Verse 29 continues. Let every man remain in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. Very few translations of the 20 that I read, very few translations of these words convey the idea they relay properly. Two different words are translated here as place. The ISV and a few others show the distinction. It says in the ISV, let each person stay where he is. They use one concept. Let no one leave his place on the seventh day. The first word is tata, which means under. The phrase says, shebu sitting man under himself. It gives the idea of staying put. The second word is makom, which means place. It says, let no man go out of his place. There is a spirit and an intent that the people were to rest. However, there's a point to which these words were taken to absolute absurd absurdity in their you know, history of Israel. There are accounts of people having fallen down on the Sabbath and refused to get back up, lest they defile the Sabbath. But in order to fall, they had to get up in the first place. The Sabbath will be addressed, and it will be readdressed in the Old Testament. But it will be Jesus who truly defines what the giving of the Sabbath meant. In Mark 2, he says this, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. In the completion of his work, fulfilling the law, he is now our rest. The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath, and we are in him when we receive him as Lord. Therefore in him we enter our rest, a rest which was truly made for man. This might be a bit complicated, but a picture is being made here that we should not miss. The Lord created Adam on the sixth day, and it says in Genesis 2, verse 8, that he then placed him in the Garden of Eden. It implies that he was made outside of the garden and then placed in it. The word used to describe placing him in the garden is yanach. It carries the idea of being set, and it means the same as the word nuach, which means rest. It is then the same word which is used in verses 23 and 24 of this chapter right here for laying up the bread for the Sabbath. Here we're being given a picture. God rested the man in the garden, and this bread is being rested for the Sabbath, the day of rest. What we lost in the Garden of Eden, God's rest, is being pictured here in the weekly Sabbath observance for Israel and which finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Again, Hebrews 4, verse 3 is the key to this lovely picture. For we who have believed do enter that rest. It is a verse we should memorize and we should never forget. The picture was given for us to see and to grasp today, while the instruction was finally obeyed by the people, verse 30. So the people rested on the seventh day. This verse here uses the verb form of the word Shabbat. And it conveys the idea of ceasing or desisting. The people ceased from looking for manna on the seventh day. Again, it is a prophetic picture of redemptive history. Man had searched for heaven's bread, but it was out of reach. However, the bread was provided in Christ. For those who have believed, we have received heaven's bread and we have ceased looking any further for it. For those who haven't, they are still searching. But in the millennium, he will sit on his throne and the nations will stream to him. The six days of the week look forward to the seventh day of rest, just as the 6,000 years of man under labor look forward to the last thousand years of rest under Christ. Verse 30 is given to show us Christ. It is offset to show us the marvelous picture of what he has done for us and what he will do for the world at large. It's simply amazing. Although they made no connection to Christ at all in their commentary, Kyle and DeLeach say this about the gathering of the manna. Through the commandments which the Israelites were to keep in relation to the manna, this gift assumed the character of a temptation or test of their obedience and faith. And they're exactly right. And it's just what we are expected to accept in our relation to our spiritual lives as humans. We cannot seize heaven, nor can we work for it we must be obedient to the word of God and demonstrate faith in Christ who has done the work for us. The bread and the rest are completely tied together in this account because they both picture Christ in his work. If we have the bread, we also have the rest. If we lack one, we lack both. It breaks my heart that Seventh-day Adventists like Ben Carson, who's running to be president right now, have missed this fact. They have missed Christ. They're trying to work their way to heaven verse 31 and the house of israel called its name manna i explained this in last week's sermon the name is actually man not manna the name manna comes from the greek translation of the old testament in hebrew man does not mean what the meaning of the name is not agreed upon but the name is man verse 31 continues and it was like white coriander seed and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey The word for coriander seed is only used twice in the Bible, and both times it is used to describe the manna. All translations agree that it is coriander, but some scholars do not. However, it is still sufficient to describe the size of it, which is small and round. Later in Numbers, it will also describe it as resembling bdellium, which is a whitish, transparent, wax-like resin. Along with the other images given, we can have a pretty good idea of what it looked like. As coriander seed is small and unnoticeable, it forms a picture of Christ, small in the eyes of the world, and yet the only source of true nourishment for the world. The color white may be used to describe him as well. In the Song of Solomon, a poem about Solomon and his bride, which is picturing Christ in his church, we read this, my beloved is white and ruddy, chief among 10,000. And interestingly, we have gone through over 2,500 years of human history so far in Genesis and Exodus, but the sense of taste in a verb form has never been mentioned until now. Meals have been cooked, and they've been consumed. Fruits and grains have been eaten in the Bible's pages, but until this verse, the mentioning of the ability to taste has been left off. Manna is described as having the ta'am, or taste, of wafers with honey. But if you think of it, if you don't know what wafers and honey tasted like, you'd be kind of in the dark about the taste of manna. However, honey is one of those foods that is found pretty much everywhere in the entire world. This is because honeybees have been domesticated in all places. Further, honey doesn't spoil and so it can be transported anywhere. This probably is not coincidence. The taste of the very substance which is described as bread from heaven and which pictures Jesus Christ is pretty much universally known and therefore we have another revelation from God's word. The word is used to describe Jesus and is said to be sweeter than honey to the mouth. Jesus is the subject of the word and is described in picture through the manna as having the taste of honey. It's like a package which has been wrapped up for the people of the world even with a beautiful bow on top of it. I will rest on the seventh day in the presence of my love trusting him I will obey, I, his precious turtle dove. He has given me bread to sustain me in his rest. I am filled with his goodness and have not a care. My tormented soul he has caressed. No more worries shall be found in there. I will eat of the manna, heaven's tasty bread, and sing praises in my rest to the Lord. I have not a trouble or a care, but instead, I am comforted as I sit and read his word. I have entered his rest. My soul has found a home there at my Savior's breast. Never again shall I roam. And I'd like to tell you that last night while watching last week's sermon online and preparing my wife to, for this sermon here, as the poem came up on the screen, she said, who typed that? And I said, I did. She had no idea that I did these poems. So if you want to know who typed these poems, I typed them, all right? Our third thought today, an omer for your generations. This is verses 32 through 35. Verse 32, then Moses said, this is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Fill an omer with it to be kept for your generations, that they may see the bread which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. The last five verses of this chapter were actually written by Moses prior to his death and before the Israelites entered the land of promise. The Lord told them that they were to fill the omer with manna. There's a definite article in front of the word omer. Although no commentary that I read noted this, because of the article and because of the words of verse 36 to come, I would suggest that the omer is referring to the exact measuring device that was used to establish what an omer is. In other words, specific measuring devices for these amounts were maintained so that any deviations or cheaters could be challenged by comparing against the known standard, which is maintained by the priests. The Omer, then, is the standard by which all other Omers were to be compared. It was this particular Omer which was used for measuring all of the manna, and thus it is the perfect picture of Christ as the full and perfect measure of what sustains us from day to day. The Omer for perfectly filling the hungry man equates to Christ for perfectly filling the hungry soul. Verse 33, and Moses said to Aaron, take a pot and put an omer of manna in it and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. From this verse, we also know that this omer of manna was collected prior to Numbers 33 verse 38, which is where Aaron's death and burial is recorded. That was in the 40th year after leaving Egypt and just before recording the book of Deuteronomy. After his instruction from the Lord for the manna to be collected, Moses in turn instructed Aaron to take the omer and put it in a pot. The reason for this might not seem evident, but it's explicitly stated in this verse. It was to be laid up before the Lord. Only Aaron was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. It was a rite that even Moses was not ordained for. Therefore, and for this reason, we are given the minute details of what has transpired. The Lord spoke to Moses, and Moses instructed that the manna be collected for this Ah. special purpose. And then he instructed Aaron to take what was collected and place it in a pot because he was the one authorized to comply with the directive. The pot in which the omer was placed was made of pure gold, as we learn from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 4. The pot used by Aaron is called a tzinsinet. It's a word that is only used here and nowhere else in the entire Bible. It comes from the word sen, which means thorn. Thus, the manna was to be ordained in a pure gold pot resembling a thorn. This then is a picture of Christ, the bread of life adorned in a crown of thorns. According to Hebrews 9, this special jar was placed inside of the Ark of the Covenant. It is implied here that the bread in this golden pot would never corrupt throughout all of their generations. Thus, it is a picture of the incorruptible bread of life, Christ Jesus. And this is confirmed by Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 3, concerning what is called the spiritual food that the Israelites fed on. Like the spiritual drink that they drank, it was Christ. Verse 34, as the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. Again, specificity is given here. The Lord commanded Moses and Aaron completed this task. As the high priest, he is the human mediator for the people and the one to minister in the Holy of Holies. And here it says he laid it up before the testimony. The wording is precise and it pictures Christ perfectly. The word for laid it up is the same word used in verses 23 and 24, yanach, to rest. The manna is rested before or literally in the face of the testimony, meaning the Ten Commandments. This is the very first reference to them in the Bible. In Hebrew, they are called edut. Thus, the ark is called aron ha-edut, or the ark of the testimony. In other words, the ark contains the testimony. We're still some chapters away from this, but the ark in every single detail pictures the person work of Jesus Christ, his life, his death. As the testimony is inside the ark, it is a picture of Christ embodying the law. Therefore, the manna is being rested in the ark next to the testimony. It is again a picture of our resting in him and what he has done. When we eat of the manna, the bread of life, then as Colossians 3 says, our status before God changes. He says, for you died and your life is hidden with, God, with Christ in God. We are literally in the face of Christ, beholding him through the gospel. This is stated by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In that one verse that Paul writes about, it mentions first creation and then redemption. He is our creator. He is our redeemer. We are resting in Christ. Again, everything we have seen in today's verses keeps bringing us back to the fact that in Christ, we have our rest because of his work, his body, his crown of thorns, and his fulfilling the law. Memorize Hebrews 4, verse 3. Think on it, ponder it, revel in it, and be confident in it. We are in Christ, and we have received our rest, a rest which is promised from the very foundation of the world itself. Verse 35, And the children of Israel ate manna 40 years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. This would have probably been one of the very last things ever written by Moses. The words of Deuteronomy were spoken to the people in the 40th year, in the 11th month, on the first day of the month. Sometime after that, the 40-year period of wilderness time was ending, and Moses then wrote these verses about the manna. There is no need to assume that someone else penned this after his death. Instead, he simply acknowledges that for the entire 40 years, when Israel was without a home, they were tended to by the Lord who brought them out of Egypt. In Joshua chapter 5, the details of the ending of the miracle of the manna are recorded. Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. And they ate the produce of the land on the day after the Passover, Unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day. Then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land and the children of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year. Any later writer would have included that the manna had ceased, but this verse simply says that the manna continued until they came to an inhabited land and to the border of Canaan, meaning the last spot where Moses stayed with Israel before his death. He faithfully recorded the account and placed it right here in Exodus chapter 16 where it most perfectly fits with the pictures of Jesus Christ that it is intended to make. Christ sustained their living bodies every single step of the way. And if this is not a perfect picture of us receiving our spiritual nourishment until we pass over Jordan and into the true land of promise, I can't think of anything else that would suffice. Every spiritual need that we have is provided for in the bread of life our lord jesus christ who is sufficient to nourish us until he delivers us to our heavenly home verse 36 ends our verses today and the chapter with these words now an omer is one-tenth of an ephah this seems like an unusual way to end a chapter which is so wonderfully used to picture christ just seems very bizarre why on earth would the lord simply add on a verse which seems so unnecessary there are at least two reasons that i can think of for this The first is that Moses is explaining the word ephah now, and yet retroactively from the end of the wilderness journeys, so when that it is never used again, the people would know what an omer is by volume. I said ephah, I meant omer. The second is dependent on the first reason. It is that the word omer, as a measurement, is used only six times in the entire Bible, and all six are in this chapter that we're looking at right now. After this chapter, the term one-tenth of an ephah is going to be used to describe the same measurement. Why would the Lord do this instead of simply carrying on with the set measurement known as an omer? The answer is, of course, Christ. The number six in the Bible is the number of man. It's the number of man. E.W. Bollinger describes the number. He says, six is either four plus two, which means man's world, four, with man's enmity to God, two, brought in. Or it is five plus one, the grace of God made of none effect by man's addition to it, working our way to heaven, or perversion or corruption of it. Or it is seven minus one, i.e. man's coming short of spiritual perfection. They all say the same thing. In any case, therefore, it has to do with man. It is the number of imperfection, the human number, the number of man as destitute of God, without God, without Christ. That's Bullinger's words there. An omer is what sustains a man for a day. Hence, there are six mentions of the omer in this passage. But that is insufficient to sustain a man, isn't it? There are actually seven days in a week. What about the seventh day? It's there. It's tucked away for us. When the omer is mentioned in verse 22, it says two omers. Thus, there is a hidden omer in the text itself. The miracle of the manna is that because of the man, Christ Jesus, there is always sufficient bread to sustain us. And because of the man, Christ Jesus, we have now entered into God's rest. The hidden omer is always enough to sustain the people of God because the hidden omer is our rest in Christ the Lord. That's where it belongs. And because of this, and because of this, we have entered into him through faith and faith alone never underestimate the marvel of what god has concealed in his perfect word it is beyond imagination i'm sure for every single picture and detail that i've pulled out of this chapter for this sermon i have missed 20 more the wondrous treasure that we call the holy bible is truly god's majestic and superior word now think of it i want you to think of it if god has put such tender and such minute care into his word for us to see his son and people keep missing details even thousands of years after they were penned, then how much more do you think he wants you to see the open and revealed message about his son? It's a message of love and reconciliation. It is a message of hope for the weary human soul. If you have never simply reached out and grasped this hope and made it a reality, I want to tell you how you can even right now, even today. Let me tell you about Jesus Christ the Lord. Every single picture, as you've seen in every verse, every word is pointing to what God is going to do in redemptive history. He is making pictures of Christ so that when Christ comes, we won't miss him. And Jesus said this with his own mouth in John chapter uh, five or six. He said, you know, you look to the word, that's the word that speaks of me. Moses wrote about me. And God is just trying to show us this again and again and again so that we don't miss the simple message when it comes. God came out of the eternal realm. He united with human flesh in the womb of a woman. He didn't inherit Adam's sin, right? He's perfect and without sin. And then he lived under this law that Israel has given that they could never live. You wait till we get to the Ten Commandments and you see how utterly they failed the the Ten Commandments. You wait. I've typed the first half. I'll type the next half tomorrow, the Lord willing. That law utterly condemns us. And trying to fulfill that law only slaps God in the face because He sent his son to do these things for us. It's saying, I don't trust that what you have done in your son is sufficient to get me back to you. And therefore I'm gonna keep working my way to heaven. I'm a seventh day Adventist or I'm a whatever. I'm gonna keep working instead of trusting in Jesus Christ. And God says that is insufficient. It will always condemn you because I have done the work in my son. And all he asks us to do is to simply by faith say, I receive Jesus Christ as Lord. That's all he wants from you is to say, I understand I'm a sinner, that he didn't sin and that he took my place at the cross of Calvary and then he popped out of the grave to prove it. Born without sin, died without sin, came back out of the grave because the wages of sin is death. If you've never asked him to forgive you, today is the day to do so. All right, our closing verse today comes from Hebrews four, it's verse nine. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. We enter his rest. We have ceased from our works. We trust in Jesus Christ. And him alone, nothing added. You want to take a Sabbath day off and honor the Lord, go ahead. But if you're doing it because you believe that you are required to do it, you stand condemned before the Lord. Next week is Exodus 17. It's verses 1 through 7. It's a beautiful picture for you, my precious flock. It's entitled, Water from the Rock. It's our 48th Exodus sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. And so follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Our poem today, based on the verses we just looked at, is called, Entering God's Rest. And yes, I type these as well, my wife. And so it was on the sixth day that they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one by the way, and all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses instead. Then he said to them at his behest, this is what the Lord has said, his spoken word, tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake today and boil what you will boil and lay up for yourselves all that remains, I say, to be kept until morning and it won't spoil. So they laid it up till morning as Moses commanded as he did submit and it did not stink nor were there any worms in it. Then Moses said, eat that today for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will find none in the field, I say. So do according to my word. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. So to you, I say. Now it happened that some of the people out they went on the seventh day to gather, but they found none. No manna had been sent. And the Lord said to Moses with no hems or haws, how long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? What is this disobedient path you choose? See, for the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore he gives you for two days on the sixth day bread that every man may remain in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day instead. So the people rested on the seventh day because the Lord wanted it this way. And the house of Israel called its name Manna, And it was like white coriander seed. and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey, sweet and tasty, it was indeed. Then Moses said, this is the thing which the Lord has commanded to do, fill an omer with it to be kept for your generations that they may see the bread with which I fed you. It was there in the wilderness from my open hand when I brought you out of Egypt, the land. And Moses said to Aaron, take a pot and put an omer of manna in it and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations not just a minute. As the Lord commanded Moses, he did relay. So Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept just as the Lord did say. And the children of Israel ate manna 40 years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate manna until they came surely with cheers to the border of a land of Canaan, a sight so grand. Now an omer is one tenth of an epah, we are told. And that, manna of, that omer of manna was kept in a pot of gold. What a marvelous passage of the Lord's tender care of the people he redeemed, Israel. Out of the wilderness is the place where these marvelous events occurred, as the story does tell. The manna fed them throughout those years, as the true bread of life feeds us as well. So let us have no frets, worries, or fears as we walk in this fallen world for a spell. Christ will surely bring us to the promised land, and when he does, it will be marvelously grand. Until that glorious, marvelous day, we will praise our God through Jesus the Lord and we daily look to see what it does say in his wondrous, superior word. Hallelujah and amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you so much for this wonderful picture of Christ. The bread in the golden pot looks like a thorn and there was the pure, undefiled Lamb of God hanging on a cross with a crown of thorns. And he did the thing that we couldn't do, and he entered into his rest, the rest of God, which was always there, but he took a spell to come down and do some work for us. And now because of what he did, we can enter into his rest as well. And we are there for all eternity in advance of actually receiving it. We're seated there with you in the heavenly places, according to uh, Ephesians chapter two. We thank you for that. We thank you that we are already saved just simply by faith and that we're just waiting for the day when you come and take us to yourself. That is, if we have called on Jesus as Lord, and I would pray that any person that hasn't done that will do so today, that they'll simply stop trying to work their way to heaven, stop listening to crazy theology of crazy people that add things into your word that do not exist, but will simply trust that Jesus is all sufficient to lead us back to you. Oh God, we do pray for uh, Roy, that he would be okay and that his uh, hip would get better really quickly. And that he'd be able to come and fellowship with us again. Pray for safe travels for Paul and Elaine. And for anybody else that uh, has something that's in their life right now that's bothering them. Or somebody in their family that's uh, causing them grief. Whatever. That you would be with them and help them. And Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to come to the Lord's table here in a minute. And also to hear some music. And we just thank you for all of these wonderful things. Lead us back here next week if it's your will. And we'll be sure to praise you and thank you once again. Because you are so worthy of it. We love you, we praise you, and we exalt you in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen.